Welcome to Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? With your host, Jeff Stein. This program really does uncover the sometime myth that all are innocent until proven guilty. The truth is that many innocent people are found guilty of a crime that they did not commit. We discuss the judicial system, its flaws, and where it could be made better. Now, here is Jeff Stein. Good morning, and welcome to episode 12 of Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? I'm really excited about today's show because did you know today is International Wrongful Conviction Day? What a great day to listen to this podcast, Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? There are many wrongful arrests and convictions in the United States. This show works to address problems with the integrity of those involved in the wrongful convictions and things that can be fixed and how. We will talk to victims of wrongful arrests and convictions, witnesses, people involved in the judicial process, and try to create an understanding that our current judicial system is not truth and justice for all. Keep in mind that this is a live show. Feel free to call or email questions or topics that you would like to discuss or hear discussed on our show today or in the future. Today, our guest is Rory J. McMahon. Good morning, Rory. Great to have you on the show today, and thanks for joining us on International Wrongful Conviction Day. Good morning, Jeff. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Rory, I was trying to figure out when our paths first crossed, and it may have been in 2012 at the Tally Conference, um, slash the, the, that was the kickoff to the Council of Association Leaders. It may have been earlier than that at an IntelNet conference, but that's the, the best I can come up with. Do you have any, any thoughts or recollections on that? I, I definitely was at that uh, conference. We probably met there. It would not have been at uh, an IntelNet conference because it, it was at that conference that, uh, that Jim actually told me that uh, uh, after years of having my uh, uh, membership application on his desk, he was finally approving it. Uh, as you know, there's a lot of uh, IntelNet people here in South Florida, so uh, uh, that association likes to, you know, just have a few in certain areas uh, uh, so that, you know, they can take care of them. Uh, my first IntelNet conference was uh, the year that uh, Jim Carino stepped down uh, at, at the one in Philadelphia. Okay. Yep. Then it was 2012 at the uh, Tally Conference, and, and that's true about IntelNet like to have um, members in, in every near every major city in the U.S. and we're definitely populated, very populated in Florida, New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. Right. So today, October 2nd, 2019, the National Registry of Exonerations reached a total of 2,500 exonerations. And that equates to 22,109 years lost by these people serving for their wrongful convictions. These numbers to me are crazy and imagine how many more there are. And of those 2,500, 47 of them, 47 of the exonerees have spent 30 plus years behind bars wrongfully convicted. Those numbers just just really blow my mind. And I, I know, I think we've both worked some exoneration cases. And back in 2010, I, I provided some investigative services for the defense where Pennsylvania exonerated its 10th person based on DNA evidence through some post-conviction DNA testing of a person serving a 70-year sentence. And um, th th there was just a lot of crazy things that took place, including the uh, district attorney's office hiding, hiding that information for years about the DNA evidence. 
And I, I'm sh- I know you have an extensive background beginning with um, being a federal probation officer in New York and then Florida, and then as an investigator and a teacher and an author. Um, I, I'd like you to, to fill in our readers on your background in detail, along with um, some of the books that you have authored. Uh, I absolutely agree with you. It, it, it's a tragic situation, and the criminal justice system does not work. I mean, the justice system doesn't work. The criminal justice system doesn't work. Uh, when, when I started uh, in, this, uh, in the criminal justice uh, industry uh, back in 1973, I was a Westchester County probation officer in New York, um, and, and, and then subsequently became a, a federal probation officer working in Manhattan and uh, Foley Square in Southern District of New York. Uh, back then, the, um, you know, I could see that, you know, there was animosity between the defense and the prosecution, but at the end of the day, uh, one would turn to the other one and say, boy, you really got me today, uh, you know, the first round of beers is on me. Fast forward, I, I then, uh, they transferred me down to South Florida uh, because of the influx of uh, Marialitos in, into uh, the South Florida community by Castro, um, and, and the crime rate just dramatically soared. Um, but I, I saw a dramatic change in the attitude of uh, the prosecution, and basically it became one of win at all costs, and that meant that, you know, there was no sharing of the discovery as required. Uh, there was hiding, you know, uh, the, the uh, possible exoneration uh, evidence. Um, it, it became so intolerable uh, that I, I, I just could no longer be quiet and, and was speaking out about it. Um, and that's when, you know, uh, I... I you know, they decided and I decided it was time for a change. Uh, and, and that's when in 1990, when, uh, when I left the government service uh, and I became a licensed investigator in Florida. Um, and, and that trend continues and it, it only worsens. Uh, you know, they, they, they just don't understand that they have an obligation, you know, to seek justice, not to just uh, you know, prosecute the, the person that the law enforcement has arrested and charged. Um, it, it's to, you know, obtain a prosecution fairly. And that's what our job as, you know, criminal defense investigators is to uh, make sure that, you know, number one, uh, that, that the evidence is, you know, sufficient to, uh, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt, and that, you know, where we can find evidence that will exonerate the people that, you know, that that evidence is brought forward. Also, unfortunately, there are too many defense attorneys, and certainly here in South Florida, you know, there, there's a large number of them that really don't believe in hiring investigators. And uh, as the Supreme Court has, you know, said many times over the years, uh, you must fully investigate each and every case, and failure to do that uh, is improper. So, um, you know, you, you, you cannot uh, bring forward a case and, and not fully investigate it and, and, you know, have any pretense that uh, there was a fair trial going on. Oh, absolutely. And you're right. It's, it's extremely adversarial. And, you know, I've mentioned this on other shows. It should be really a team. You know, there, there's no... There, it's not a football game. People need to understand that you need to do what's you need to find who really did commit that that murder, that crime, 
rape, drugs, whatever it is, doesn't matter, and work together to provide that legal and criminal defense, not work to prosecute, prosecute, prosecute the wrongfully accused. I know on, on previous shows, I've mentioned that there are many wrongful arrests and convictions in, in the U.S., and anyone can be a victim to the judicial system because of false or coerced statements, ineffective assistance of counsel, lackadaisical police work, prosecutorial misconduct, jailhouse snitches, deceitful witnesses, and even dishonest expert witnesses. And the list goes on and on. So we, we you know, really need to help educate the United States. I mean, we are the, the U.S has more people housed in prison than any other domestic country in the world, which is crazy. And, and for totally our listeners, there, there's approximately 2 million people in jail or prison in the United States. And that equates to anywhere between, you know, depending on, on what the, the numbers, what the statistics you want to believe are correct, anywhere from 40,000 Or on the high end, it could be as many as 200,000 innocent men and women who have been wrongfully convicted. And that doesn't include those who have been wrongfully charged of a crime either. So those numbers are are much greater. And, you know, during the the trial stage, somebody can be incarcerated or in jail for two years, three years, waiting for their trial or working on their trial. So um, I'm really really happy to have you on the show is I know you have a wealth of knowledge and experience with many of these issues. Uh, the the other thing that I want to point out is the, the disparity between the uh, wealthy defendants and the uh, the poor defendants. I mean, obviously, the wealthy defendants uh, uh, have the luxury of hiring the best lawyers, and and usually those lawyers are skilled enough that they want to bring in you know talented investigators. Um, and the last three cases that I've actually worked, uh, fortunately, have been with uh, people of means. And we were able to, in, in each of those instances, provide uh, the prosecution with enough information to show that they didn't have the evidence to support a conviction. Uh, in, in two out of three cases, uh, they, they were at the, the crime never even actually committed, uh, charged, committed. So, uh, so we were able to get the charges dismissed before they went uh, to trial. But, you know, the reputation of the people, one of them uh, was a wealthy, uh, very wealthy businessman in Miami. He was actually, he's Belgian, um, and he was charged with um, uh, having sexual misconduct with a six-year-old uh, girl, um, and, and it was at a party that his wife and his daughters were actually present at, and we were able to prove that, uh, that the, the crime never occurred. Um, but that didn't, you know, stop, you know, he, he was the focus of media attention for days and, and on, you know, uh, camera and, you know, captured on camera at night. I mean, his reputation, you know, he, he still has not recovered from that. And that was three years ago. Uh, I mean, his financial advisor told him just the day of the arrest alone, his uh, portfolio took a $10 million hit and he was, you know, bounced off several boards that he was on. That's the other unknown um, you know, negative factor that happens uh, just by charging an individual with a crime. Um, you know, the damage to his reputation, you know, and of course it's front page news when they're arrested. Uh, and then when the case is dismissed, there's no news. It's not even reported in the, uh, in the media. So uh, it, it's not just the, the financial and, and the emotional toll that it takes on the defendant and his family. 
it, it, it's a financial one that, uh, you know, that, that can linger for the rest of their lives. Absolutely. And you bring up some great points and, and it also affects their, their family. You know, do they, yes. does the spouse or children stay with them? You know, do they get divorced? Do their, um, mom, dad, aunts, uncles, cousins, whoever, siblings, do they support them? Does it break up the family? I, I you know, I'm in, I'm in, go to visit a client, um, usually in prison a few times a month and almost every one of them, they've lost touch with their kids because they're, yeah. you know, they're, they're convicted of a crime and now they got to try to fight for their, um, for their innocence and try to rebuild those relationships with, you know, previous spouses or, or their children who, you know, they didn't get to see grow up. And when they are exonerated or if they are found, you know, released, they can't get that time back. It's gone. It's long gone. Right. And of course, then you have the whole financial status. And and that's for the ones who are, like you mentioned, it sounds like this, this recent client was fortunate to have the, the funds available to fight this. But imagine if he didn't. And they may not have had the same investigation. I can imagine it, services. and I've, I've lived it. Uh, probably one of the uh, a case that I will never get over. Uh, I was involved in the Liberty City 7 case uh, uh, back in 2006, where uh, seven defendants were charged with being al-Qaeda terrorists. Um, all seven were of Haitian descent, and uh, they were uh, as much al-Qaeda terrorists as you and I are, Jeff, uh, uh, and my uh, client, uh, a guy by the name of Patrick Abraham, who, according to the government, was the lieutenant of the organization. Um, I, I mean, it, it went to the, the first trial ended in a hung jury. The second trial ended, and then the acquittal of one of the seven. Second trial ended in a hung jury, uh, and yet they went forward with with the third trial. Third trial, um, one of the defendants was acquitted. Four were convicted after um, they, they, the jury was deadlocked. They, they reported that one of the jurors uh, was a holdout. The judge removed that juror from, uh, from the panel over the objection of the defense attorneys. Uh, and then the jury went back and deliberated and came back with a uh, guilty verdict on four, including Patrick Abraham. Uh, and he was sentenced to nine years in jail for a crime that he did not commit. And uh, I'll believe that to my dying day. I mean, uh, the listeners can, can Google Liberty City 7. They even have a Wikipedia page. Even the Wikipedia page, you know, clearly demonstrates that uh, this was an anomaly. And basically it was the FBI looking to make a case because once they were charged with, by Congress to get into the terrorism business, uh, you know, they had to make arrests. And, uh, and these seven... People. There was only one criminal, and that was the ringleader, Narcil Batiste, and he wasn't a terrorist. He was a fraudster. He was looking to basically get the $5,000 that was promised to them for, you know, whatever they wanted him to do. And it was, you know, basically two FBI informants that were basically pulling the strings uh, on this case. Um, and it was, it was just a travesty. So I, I've been there and, and seen what happens when, you know, the federal government, you know, decides that, you know, they're going to get a conviction. And, you know, as we both know, uh, in federal cases, the conviction rate is 97%, meaning that 3% go to trial. Of the 3% that go to trial, uh, another 97% are convicted. 
So the odds of, you know, you successfully overcoming a federal indictment are, you know, really slim. So, but, you know, uh, that, that shouldn't keep us from, you know, putting up the good fight. No, absolutely not. And that's interesting. So I I am slightly familiar with Liberty City 7. Um, Is is there any hope for any of them now? No, he's uh, Patrick is is, uh, is out of, I mean, he he was in jail for for over three years before the conviction uh, came in. And during that time, he was held in the SHU, which which is uh, the special housing unit of the federal government, which means that he's in a jail cell for 23 hours out of 24. He gets an hour to go go out and, you know, uh, into the yard for recreation. Uh, So that's really hard time. Uh, But no, he he did his time. And as soon as he was released, he was uh, deported back to Haiti. I mean, this is a guy that came over here, you know, because half of his family was over here. He loved being in America. I mean, mm. let's see. Do, do I, do I want to live in Haiti or would I rather live in, you know, in, in South Florida, in Miami? Uh, there's no choice there. Uh, right. I, I mean, I, I'm sure he had better conditions in prison than he's going through right now in, in Haiti. But, you know, still, uh, I mean, he, he just he couldn't believe uh, that, that, you know, something like this could happen to him. Um, you know, and, and it's a travesty. Wow. It really is. And it happens. You know, we, we live yep. it, we see it, and we just need to do what we can and try to provide the best services for them. And that's what happens. You know, that is a big challenge in the United States between those who have the legal the, the funds and the means to provide a really good legal defense. And that includes um, a, a, your dream team, you know, a, a good attorney, right. a good investigator, and really turning over every rocks and sometimes there's just not enough money or funds to do that. It's, it's unfortunate. And, you know, there is pro bono work out there, but everybody needs to make a living. You know, you need to pay the bills too. Well, I love the federal criminal justice system working those cases. So uh, I'm on the, the, uh, I work with several uh, of the defense attorneys that are on the panel and, and I welcome that opportunity to, uh, you know, to do investigative work at a reduced rate because, uh, I believe in the work, and, and I think the defendants, you know, have, have the right to have a good investigation conducted on their behalf, so, uh, so uh, I'm going to keep doing that. But, uh, you know, it's disheartening uh, to see what's going on with, with the system, and, um, you know, uh, as Brandon, I know you had him on recently, you know, we have to keep up the good fight to, to you know, make the prosecutors, you know, prove their case, and... Uh, and hope that the, the lawyers have the skill to, uh, in, in cases where they don't have the evidence to, to you know, demonstrate that and, and you know, prevail, in, you know, with uh, an acquittal or a hung jury or, or something uh, to stave it off uh, and, you know, hopefully reduce to a lesser plea or, or reduce sentence or, or something else. Yep, I agree. This is a, a perfect time for us to take a, a quick commercial break. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. 
ELPS Private Detective Agency is here to provide you with security and investigative services. Our specialties include criminal defense, surveillance, security consulting, loss prevention investigations, and more. ELPS Private Detective Agency is a dynamic team of professionals with over 30 years of experience. No case is too small, too large, or too difficult. We're licensed, bonded, and insured. Visit ELPSPDA.com on the web or call us at 877-SEE-THAT. ELPS Private Detective Agency. Fighting theft, fraud, and crime, one case at a time. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? To reach Jeff Stein or his guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or you can send an email to jstein at elpspda.com. Now, back to Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? Welcome back. And we were just talking about the difference when uh, somebody has the financial means and when somebody doesn't, and it's very disheartening. Rory, have you heard about all the corruption with the Philadelphia Police Department and Chicago and some of the others in the news lately? I have. Do, do you see any of that police corruption um, often in your investigations as well? And in, in Florida, do you see that? I do. Uh, as a matter of fact, when uh, I was in uh, federal probation in Miami, um, there was a lot of corruption that was going on with the uh, uh, Miami Police Department, uh, and, and there were uh, uh, convictions of, uh, of police officers. You know, you, you have to imagine, uh, I mean, the, the amount of cocaine and, and other drugs that were flowing into South Florida uh, just created an environment that, that I have never seen, even coming out of New York. Uh, just the the, uh, the amount of, of wealth and the conspicuous consumption of luxury items. I mean, you see 21-year-old kids, you know, driving around Maseratis and, and uh, uh, you know, go-fast boats and, and all the rest of that, you know, with Coke spoons hanging around their, their neck, uh, you know, and necklaces. Uh, you know, I mean, it was a field day for DEA agents, but... Uh, you know, I heard, you know, people being offered $100,000 to, to, you know, allow their boat to be used by somebody for a night. I mean, it, it takes a lot of gumption for somebody to be able to turn that down. So uh, a buddy of mine, uh, an associate, uh, Doug Haas, uh, uh, was offered $250,000 that was in a, uh, you know, a duffel bag in, in the back of a car, uh, take the money and, and just let him go. Uh uh, you know, fortunately, he, he he didn't do it, but, uh, you know, that's the kind of atmosphere that was going on back then. Um, so, you know, as a result, there, there was a lot of corruption, and, you know, the corruption continues. I worked the case as a private investigator uh, where we charged somebody, the police department, uh, with the wrongful death. Um, and the, the individual uh, that, that I was working on behalf of was running from the police, and he was shot three times in the back by four or five uh, Miami police officers. And um, 
fortunately for us, I was able to find a witness when he landed on the ground, um, a, a, a group of women who had just uh, left the party saw him hit the ground, got out of the car and looked at him, and there was no gun next to him. As soon as the police got down there, all of a sudden a gun appeared. But you, you look at the autopsy and you see, you know, they, they, the police alleged that he had a gun in his hand and he, and he jumped off a bridge and he was turning back facing them uh, and firing at them. Well, A, he didn't have a gun. He was shot three times in the back. One of the bullets hit his spine, so he would be incapable of turning and firing. Um, you know, and as we were able to show, uh, he had, there was no gun when he landed. Um, so uh, those officers, so we won the case. I think it actually settled. Um, and then the police officers were charged with uh, a federal violation, violation of, of his and another uh, individual was also shot. But, you know, uh, there, there, there's also not, not just the, the, the uh, there's a racial atmosphere in, in South Florida as well, uh, a division between the, the blacks and the Hispanics. Uh, uh, they don't play well together. So, you know, there, there's, there's that uh, as well, and that's resulted in, in a lot of, you know, civil and criminal cases, uh, you know, in the South Florida courts. Mm-hmm. Yep, you see that all more frequently than we'd like to, unfortunately. Yeah. You, you know, you, you mentioned New York, um, and, and you started your career in New York. Is that where you grew up originally? Yes. Uh, I was actually born in Manhattan. Uh, family moved uh, to Yonkers uh, when I was five. Um, and I, I, I lived in Yonkers in, until uh, uh, 1982 when I moved to South Florida. Gotcha. I'm originally from northern Jersey and spent a lot of time in New York and New York City. And they've been in the news a lot lately. There's been a lot of suicides among NYPD, which yeah. is very concerning and alarming. And, you know, I, I don't know why I'm not familiar with any of the details on, on why they're killing themselves and why there's been uh, a spree. But um, it's sad. And I, I don't know, you know, if it involves the stress of the job, corruption, uh, intimidation. I, I have no idea. I don't. I don't know if you have any insight on that. I, I, I do. Uh, I, I think that. I mean, what they see, um, you know, day to day, there's a tendency to go to the dark side. Um, that which also leads to, uh, you know, alcoholism or heavy drinking. Uh, which also, I mean, if you have a tendency to depression, the alcohol will will worsen that. Um, so, you know, it's a bad combination, and um, when, when things go wrong, uh, that, that seems to be, you know, the first option that they go to. I don't know why, but, you know, uh, my buddy Doug and I have had conversations, many conversations about that, and, uh, and it certainly is a, a problem in, in law enforcement. Um, so, you know... I, they have to be vigilant, uh, but you know they, they also have that macho, you know, image. They don't want to admit that they have problems, uh, uh, whether it be drinking or drugs or, or family or emotional. You know, they they want to you know grin and bear it, and you know, as you and I know, that that's not the way to you know to resolve the problem. Right. No, that's very true, and and I know um, uh, a few months ago on. Uh, two of our episodes, we had uh, Jeffrey Walker. He was a 
Philadelphia police officer and with the narcotics unit for several years. He was actually on the force for 24 years and he was corrupt. Uh, he was into drinking and whatnot. But when um, he was caught by the feds, the feds busted him and he became a, a cooperative witness at that point. He did his time in federal prison and now he's, he's out trying to right the wrongs. But a lot of right. what you said is is true. And, you know, from we heard it from somebody who was who was corrupt. Uh, they did a lot of drinking, a lot of partying. And it just leads, you know, there's there's different venues and or different avenues that they can take. And as for some reason in New York City, they're they're going the suicide route, which I hope they can fix that and change that. I know in Philadelphia, they, they really need to um, crack down and, and their their union is so strong. It makes it difficult to even fire um police officer so those are a lot of different things that i, I think there, really there's also to... the the intense scrutiny that they're under i mean you know Absolutely. and they have to realize it there nothing they do uh is going to be not scrutinized i mean everybody has a cell phone and they're taking videos and photos so i mean you really have to think i mean you you, you have to think before you do anything anyway but you doubly have to do it now because uh and, you know, as we know, you know, the camera starts rolling, you know, probably long after the, the incident that, that, you know, escalated the situation occurred. So you're not seeing that. You're seeing the response. And uh, and the response, you know, usually becomes headlines because uh, the media loves to show, uh, you know, law enforcement beating up on, you know, the little guy. So, you know, sometimes that's justified, sometimes it's not. But, you know... The, the the focus is really on them um, more so now more so than than ever before. Yep, yeah, that's true. And and you know, I I do want to say, you know, I mean, I'm I'm a total supporter of our our men in blue, our men in uniform, and it's just unfortunate there's some bad apples like any profession, including private investigators, where you know you just have a, a small percentage that don't do the right things all the time, even when no one else is looking. And that's what causes these issues. It's, um, but it, it's not the majority of them. It's definitely the minority of them. You know, there's, there's uh, just a few bad apples, but it just gets highlighted. And of course, you know, it equals hundreds of thousands of people, you know, being wrongfully convicted, wrongfully incarcerated, which is why we do what we do, trying to provide that defense for someone just because they're charged with a crime. And, and you know, a lot of times, the police bring that case because that's the evidence and the information that they have based on witnesses and, and deceitful witnesses and um, photo lineups that, you know, aren't really aren't up to par. So, you know, the, the prosecution runs with it. And that's where we come in and try to say, wait, wait a minute, let's go back and talk to everybody. You know, there, there, there were a few people that weren't spoken to and they're going to provide a whole nother alibi, a whole nother um, view of how and what went down at that time. I agree with you a hundred percent, but, and, uh, the, I think one of the problems with, uh, with law enforcement is there's a rush to judgment. There's a rush to, to, you know, uh, get a person arrested, close the case. Um, and sometimes they stop the investigation when they shouldn't, you know, uh, if they, if they went, you know, tied up all the loose ends, uh, maybe there wouldn't be these charges brought, uh, uh, you know, that are being brought. Um, it, it's just, 
you know, the, the investigations are not thorough and complete. And, you know, that's what I'm finding as, uh, you know, a legal investigator that, you know, uh, I'm working a case now. A doctor is charged in a healthcare fraud case. And, uh, you know, the shoddiness of the investigation uh, by the federal law enforcement agency uh, is appalling. And, um, you know, I, I, I think there was a rush to, to, you know, get this case indicted. And, um, you know, I, I think the attorneys, uh, we, we were hoping to be able to meet with uh, the, the prosecutor before they actually indicted. I mean, my client was arrested in, in uh, July, um, and they didn't indict him um, until actually last week. Um, but once the attorney basically was asking the prosecutor, who was actually a prosecutor up in New Jersey, for, uh, you know, the opportunity to come in and, and, you know, present some of the evidence that we covered, uncovered during our investigation, um, within two days, uh, the indictment came out. So, uh, obviously, he had no interest in, you know, hearing what we had uncovered in, in our investigation. And who does that? Why would you do that? Why would you not want to hear, uh, if nothing else, uh, I mean, if I were the prosecutor, I'd want to hear what the other side uncovered so that I could make sure that, you know, we had the evidence to overcome that, you know, when we bring our case. But no, he decided uh, to pull the trigger, uh, issue the indictment, and then, of course, issue the, the massive press releases, uh, including to the, to the press down here in Florida, uh, where our client lives and, you know, thereby extremely damaging his reputation uh, as a doctor in the community. I mean, seriously, the, the war has already started, uh, uh, you know, and, and we're, we're probably, you know, uh, months if not a year away from, from the trial. But, you know, it, it, it's just evidence of the problem in the system. Yep. No, I, I agree. I, I see that. All the time, and and I think, I think we're we we see this all the time because that's what we do, and we're providing that defense. But I, I would still say that there's a lot of really good ones out there, and I know I have a lot of friends who are current law enforcement or or retired, and and there, there's one that always stands out in my mind. He was a, a detective with the Pennsylvania State Police and and retired about a year ago. And we would talk about cases all the time. And, you know, I'd bounce ideas off of him. And he's probably one of the most um, loyal and ethical people I've ever met, you know, just in his in his personal life, in his work life, in his law enforcement career. He's just by the books, does does the right thing all the time and, and always did. And, um, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of good ones out there like that. We're just not working those cases against those guys were working him against the others, um, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, my name is McMahon. Uh, I'm um, Irish Catholic. Uh, there have been uh, many relatives that have gone to uh, uh, law enforcement, New York City Police Department, and, and whatnot. I have a lot of friends in law enforcement. Um, I, as you say, I, I'm just talking about those individuals who, who you know, phone it in or, uh, you know, other issues going on in their lives. And, and uh, you know, but it, it, the, the case goes up the system. Um, and, you know, there are many opportunities to catch the problems, and they don't seem to be catching the problems. It seems to be once it lands on a prosecutor's desk, you know, that prosecutor, whether it be man or woman, decides that they're going to do everything they possibly can uh, to prove that this person committed the crime. 
And that's not what their job is. And, you know, they're not doing the checks and balances that are required, uh, you, you know, to exonerate those people that are wrongfully charged. And, and that is the problem. It, it's, you know, the system of checks and balances is not working. You know, where, where the case, uh, where the person is arrested that maybe should not have been arrested, uh, to that, you know, for that case to go all the way up the chain, you know, to be brought into court, for the prosecutors not to provide, you know, the Brady material and the other exculpatory material to the defense that they're required to do, uh, the, the win-at-all-cost mentality, you can't allow that. You, you know, you have to do it the right way, um, you know, and that's the only way that, you know, we're, we're, we're going to not see, you know, all of these people wrongfully convicted uh, and, and doing years and years in jail uh, for crimes they didn't commit. Yes, and and I, I agree with you totally on that. And and one of the big things with that, and and you hit the nail on the head when you said, you know, as it go up, as it goes up the chain, right? So the the police officers make the arrest based on the information that they have, right, wrong, or indifferent, but you know they do. And then it's up to the the prosecutors, the district attorneys, whatever you want to call them, you know, to to move forward on those charges and to present that case in in court for a trial. And what we find so often is that, you know, you mentioned Brady violations and um, all these other things that come into play. And be, before we take a before we go to a commercial break in a minute, one of the big things I feel about this is that the prosecutorial immunity. So when, when the D.A. doesn't provide that information and, and there's Brady violations or there's a lawsuit because they didn't do what they were supposed to do. They sit back and and they're they're immune to this because of prosecutorial immunity, and I think that's one of the big things that needs to be fixed. Is they need to be held accountable for their actions, just like the defense attorneys are, and just like we are as as investigators, private investigators, criminal defense investigators, law enforcement. You know, we can all be charged with crimes, but the attorneys or, or the prosecutors and the DAs when they fail to do their job or fail to communicate by accident, whatever you want to call it, they, they have immunity. And that's, I think, one of the biggest issues that we face that needs to be fixed. So, you know, once, once you set that zero tolerance that, hey, you're held accountable just like everybody else, I, th- I think that evens out the playing field a little bit more. Absolutely. I, I agree with you 100%. All right. Let's... Um, Take a real quick break so our sponsors can be heard, and we'll return in just a minute. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. ELPS Private Detective Agency is here to provide you with security and investigative services. Our specialties include criminal defense, surveillance, security consulting, loss prevention investigations, and more. ELPS Private Detective Agency is a dynamic team of professionals with over 30 years of experience. No case is too small, too large, or too difficult. We're licensed, bonded, and insured. Visit ELPSPDA.com on the web or call us at 877-SEE-THAT. ELPS Private Detective Agency. Fighting theft, fraud, and crime, one case at a time. 
Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to is there really truth and justice for all to reach jeff stein or his guest today please call in to 1-866-472-5788 that's 1-866-472-5788 or you can send an email to jstein at elpspda.com now back to is there really truth and justice for all welcome back everyone We've spent the last 40 minutes talking about wrongful convictions and how they occur and why they occur and what we do to try to fix it and some recommendations that we have. And we just got to keep fighting the fight. One of the things that we find is in all professions, you need continuing education. You need to be updated on current laws, trends, crimes, um, different things that take place. Law enforcement has their in-service days. They go through this on a regular basis private investigators in, in, um, do as well. And we do this as um, through conferences and seminars and um, uh, webinars. So there's a lot of different things that go on for private investigators to really fine tune their skills, learn more. Um, both Rory and I uh, attended the um, Criminal Defense Training Institute where we're board certified criminal defense investigators. And, and that's a week long program that's held in, in, well, there are corporate offices in Florida, but they they go out other places as well. So there's things that we do to improve our skills. And um, I want to talk to Rory a little bit about what your recommendations are for new investigators who want to learn more about becoming criminal defense investigators, as well as private investigators and different courses that are available. And I know you're involved with some, and I'd like to talk about some that you're involved in, some things that you created as well. So I'm going to turn the mic over to you and, and let you uh, educate the listeners on some things that investigators have uh, the means to um, better their education and their skills. Uh, thanks, Jeff. Uh, I want to go back in time to, uh, uh, to 1990 when I left the government and became a, a private investigator. Uh, I was fortunate that uh, a friend of mine was actually affiliated with a, a college, City College in Fort Lauderdale, uh, that was offering a certificate program uh, to become a, a private investigator. And they were looking to expand. Uh, he was teaching uh, the class at night. And they were looking to, it was so successful, they were looking to expand it during the day. And uh, he needed someone to teach the day class. Well, when I was in college, I was an English major, and I thought I was going to be a high school English teacher. So I always wanted to be a teacher. Um, and getting into the field, I, I really knew nothing about private investigation. I knew how to conduct criminal investigations as a probation officer. I knew how to do background checks on people. But, you know, all of the rest of it was pretty foreign to me. So I, I jumped at the opportunity, uh, first of all, you know, a paying job. And, and second of all, an opportunity to learn about the business. Well, the bad news was the uh, there were no books uh, at the time, uh, Ralph Thomas from NAIS, uh, you know, had these pamphlets um, that that I would uh, have the students use, and this was uh, um, a, a program. That there were uh, uh, eight classes um, that were uh, eighty hours each, uh, 
So, you know, a, a criminal investigation class, I, I had to have 80 hours worth of material. Uh, well, you know, that was stretching even my abilities, uh, not to mention, the, you know, fraud and, and insurance and all these other uh, fields that I really didn't know anything about. Um, so I would actually, and, you know, uh, my buddy that brought me in, you know, he was a private investigator, so he would fill in the time telling war stories. I had no war stories. Um, so I spent a lot of time at the library doing research. Um, shortly thereafter, the, uh, the course became a two-year associate's degree course. Uh, so now it's an accredited uh, class, uh, so even more pressure on me. So, uh, I, you know, I got to the point where I taught for seven years, and, and you know, by year four, I, I had enough material put together that I felt comfortable teaching the different classes. Um, and, and then in uh, 1997, you know, I decided uh, it was costing me more to be a teacher than I was making as a private investigator because I also had my agency I was running at the same time. So uh, I, I left, uh, I left uh, the teaching world and, and devoted full-time to being an investigator. Uh, several years later, I was approached by CRC Press um, who was interested in, in writing uh, and having a book out for private investigators. So I told them I had this wealth of material about this course, you know, that I taught, you know, teaching people, basically mostly non-law enforcement people, how to be investigators. So, you know, that seemed to work hand-in-hand hand with what they were looking for, uh, and that uh, resulted in, in 2001, the publication of a book called uh, Practical Handbook for Professional Investigators. Um, and like my early foray into teaching, uh, I was not really happy with my first efforts. So uh, five years later, when they said that the book was selling so well that they wanted a second edition, I said I would do it only if they changed the name of the book. My editor laughed and said that's never happened in the history of publishing. Uh, and I explained to her that this wasn't just for private investigators. This was a program for all types of investigators, and I wanted the name changed to Practical Handbook for Professional Investigators. She came back to me two or three days later and said they would go along with that. They would change the name, and they did. So my second effort came out in, in 2006 or seven or whatever, um, Practical Handbook for Professional Investigators, second edition. Uh, and then five years later, they came back to me, and, and I felt like, uh, you know, I still hadn't crossed all the bridges I wanted to cross, and uh, welcome the opportunity. So uh, in 2013, the third edition came out. But I have always been a proponent of, of training for investigators. Um, I know here in South Florida, and I'm, I'm here in Florida, and I'm sure throughout the, the rest of the United States, you know, most people that become licensed private investigators are ex-law enforcement people. And like me, uh, you know, your your education only goes so far in terms of you know, the cases that you're going to encounter as, and, you know, a private investigator. And you certainly have no knowledge of domestic cases other than arresting people involved in them or, or doing, you know, skip tracing or doing insurance work or, you know, a, a lot of other things. So, uh, you know, and, and the only thing that, that's really out there previously has been, you know, as you're talking about the, the conferences, um, well, there's a lot of people that aren't members of professional associations. So, you know, they're not exposed to that. And in Florida, there's over 9,000 licensed investigators. 
So, uh, and a lot of those are, are, as you can imagine, are retired law enforcement from other states that have moved and, you know, and retired to South Florida or Florida. Um, so back, uh, I think 2007, 2008, uh, the state of Florida, um, decided that, you know, there was no requirements to be, uh, licensed as a, uh, in Florida, it's a two-tier system. You have, uh, if you have no investigative background, you, you can get a license as an intern, and then you work for an agency for two years, and then you can be licensed as an investigator. Well, they finally created a, um, an online training course that, that interns had to take before they could, uh, you know, be licensed as an intern. And um, I was actually on the panel appointed by the state to come up with the, uh, the materials that were needed, you know, to, to be part of that course. And then I became affiliated with um, the S2 Institute, um, which created uh, an online version of that 40-hour course, and, and I'm the primary instructor. So, um, you know, there, there's 12 or 13, uh, I, I think, institutions that are approved. Most of them are classroom based, um, and then there are several, two or three that are that are online. So I, I was fortunate uh, in, in 2008. Uh, the, the the S2 is located over on the West Coast, and and the they're primarily a, a security company. Uh, they also do bodyguard protection and whatnot, but they have a third component, which is the training. Um, so they asked me to spearhead this this forty hour um, training for interns, um, and and I went over and having no experience with doing online stuff, I went over and um, you know would, and did the five or six classes that that I was responsible for for instructing. Um, and again, you know, probably not my best effort. I, I would I would like a redo on that, but so that was my first foray into. Uh, into online stuff, but you know, as an investigator, and I'm sure you get the same calls that I do. People calling up, this is a fascinating field. How do I get into it if I don't have the law enforcement background? And, and unfortunately, you know, other than you know the few city colleges uh, or you know five investigative programs out there, there isn't much, and, and certainly nothing uh, of, of extreme quality. Um, so. I have been working on and off since 2004 with, with trying to formulate some kind of uh, uh, a program that could go into like community college or technical schools or, or you know, four-year colleges. Um, and I've really devoted myself the last couple of years to, to trying to make that happen. Well, uh, fortunately, um, uh, last year, uh, no, uh, actually six months ago, uh, I met with representatives from Brookdale Community College in New Jersey, and they uh, are in the process of, of offering my Certificate in Professional in- in Investigation Program, uh, which is a 105-hour uh, classroom uh, program. There's 11 modules, and, uh, and, and then it's, it's supplemented by uh, 16 hours of uh, fieldwork uh you know, conducting surveillances uh, that the surveillance instructor will oversee. Um, that program is, is scheduled to start uh, next week, um, assuming they have enough enrollees. But, you know, that's the type of thing that uh, I think needs, needs to happen in, in every state in, in the country for the, the people that want to be investigators. And, and you and I come across them all the time. Um, 
you know, and they're penalized because they are not, you know, they don't have a law enforcement background. So they don't meet the investigative experience criterion in order to get licensed. And for instance, in New Jersey, um, you actually have to, to work for an agency for five years if you don't have law enforcement before you can be licensed as an investigator. So, you know, it, that, that's a, uh, a strong threshold to overcome. And, you know, agencies are not willing to hire you if you don't have some background. So hopefully, you know, these types of training programs will allow the person who is interested in getting in this industry. And again, it's not just they're professional investigators. It's not just, you know, private investigators that that we're looking to train. There's investigators in every different, you know, industry out there, Um, you know, private investigation being just one of them. So and, you know, they're. There are studies that this is a growing field, uh, and, you know, there's going to be more and more opportunities, uh, particularly in this, you know, information age that we're in. So, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get the word out and, and get – it's tough to get into these schools because you have to get past the gatekeeper. And I, I haven't gone into a program and met with people where I haven't been told this is a great idea. Uh, particularly, you're, you're looking at people coming out of uh, the military – that, you know, have limited options on employment, you put them in this program, and it's basically a three-month program. Um, you know, they, they start in October, they finish in February, and, and, you know, they can go out and get a job, you know, as, a, as an intern or, you know, as a novice investigator starting out that has the, the tools they needed to do the job. All they need is the experience. And that's basically, you know, what I'm trying to get out there and promote. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's frustrating that it, it, it's, you know, uh, I get a lot of people that say it's a great idea, but, I, you know, I don't see the uh, compelling urge to, to get out there and, and really make it happen. So um, that, that's the frustrating part. But I'm going to keep trying because uh, I know it's going to work. Uh, when I was teaching at City College, it was I started teaching. It was at one campus in Fort Lauderdale. When I left in 1997, it was being taught at four campuses, one in Miami, one in Orlando, uh, one in Gainesville. So uh, I know that there, you know, is a need and, and a desire, you know, for this type of training. Um, I just am finding the a lack of uh, uh, schools uh, or institutions that are interested in, in, in actually pulling the trigger and getting it done. Oh, that's great. I'm I'm glad to hear that you had success, you know, getting into the junior college, um, community college in New Jersey. I know um, every state's a little bit different. I do uh, have my New Jersey private investigator's license. I have my New Jersey security agency license, and I'm a SOAR instructor in the state of New Jersey as well, and then have my Pennsylvania private investigator's license, which is a little bit different than New Jersey. And New Jersey requires the five years minimum investigative experience. Pennsylvania is three years. Uh, Every state is a little bit different. Some states have tests. And then I think there's still four or five that don't require a license. And hopefully that'll continue to change because um, I'm definitely a proponent of that as well. So we only have about 30 seconds left before the end of the show. What is the best way for clients to reach you or potential um, students to reach you? Uh, through my website, uh, it's um, McMahon, M-C-M-A-H-O-N-P-I.com. Uh, they can email me at Rory at McMahonPI.com. 
Um, and, and certainly, if anybody has any connections to any schools out there, uh, you know, uh, hit me up, and you know, uh, I'll be happy to, to start a dialogue with you or with them, uh, uh, and see if we can, you know, get get a program in a school near you. That'd be great, Rory. I appreciate you taking the time with us this this past hour, especially on uh, such a special day. I want to thank all of our listeners for listening. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please consider giving it a five-star review on whatever podcast platform you use to listen. As we continue to increase our listener base, we appreciate your positive reviews. Thank you and have a great day. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? We can be heard Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please join host Jeff Stein for another edition of the program next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out